Thank you, Vic, and Drew, and Jonathan, and Emma, and John, Ruth, Shannon, Rachel. If you have a Bible, I could invite you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 23. It's page 295 in the Red Pew Bibles, and I would really uh, encourage you, if you could, see a copy of God's Word. Uh, this, is our, this is our sixth Sunday night, retelling David's story. And as we walk our way through, and, and effectively that's all, that's all I've been doing in this series, is just walking our way through the narrative and through his life and his experiences and then attempting to sort of learn lessons and make connections. And last week, uh, we left David at a cave and he was surrounded by an intriguing group of people. And, and if you if you kind of flick back to verse 2 of the previous chapter, you'll see that he was surrounded by the distressed, the discontent, and those who were in debt. The distressed, the discontent, and those who were in debt. There were 400 men in this particular group. And his family had also joined him. Although given the... Uh, Given the living conditions of a cave and the potential threat that was on David's life because Saul was hunting him down, David had arranged for his mum and dad to go into care. And we looked at that last week and, and David asked a local king to look after his mum and dad until God would reveal to David what he was going to do with him. The other person to join David, so you've got to remember there's these 400 distressed, discontent, and people in debt. His family, minus his mum and dad. And the other person to join David, or rather to be offered sanctuary by David, is a priest called Abiathar, who had survived a recent bloodbath whenever 85 other priests were butchered along with many women, men, and children by Doeg the Edomite. So that's kind of where we've got to in the story. That's where we find ourselves. So beginning of chapter 23, follow this with me. Word filters through to David that the Philistines are fighting against Keilah. And so David inquires of the Lord as to whether he should go and fight back. Should he go from his cave and defend the people of Keilah? God says, yes. But David's men are a little more nervous and reluctant. And so David inquires of the Lord for a second time. He gets the green light and God assures him of victory. And right enough... What God says will happen, happens. Because that, that's kind of the way it works with God. What God says will happen, happens. Word then gets to Saul that David is now at this place called Keilah. And he's taken it. But Saul reckons, look at verse 7. Saul reckons that God has delivered David into his hands. Interesting. And so Saul sends people to besiege him. 
But the problem is, Saul might think he's heard God. Saul might even believe he knows what God is doing or is going to do, but he doesn't. He gets it badly wrong or he's seriously deluded. And therefore, to quote verse 14, God did not give David into Saul's hands. And you know, as I just read that, it it, it struck me that many people claim to know God's mind. Many people claim to speak for God. Claim to know what God is doing. But not all those claims are grounded in reality. And we've got to be incredibly careful whenever someone says, this is what the Lord says. David, on the other hand, he appears to have direct divine access. And this time, as you you read the next little bit, via the priest Abiathar, David seeks answers to three questions. He wants to know Saul's plans. And he wants to know what is, what is the likely reaction of the people of Keilah. God, what I want to know is, are the people of Keilah going to sell me out? That, that's effectively what he asks of God via the priest. God confirms that the people of Keilah will sell him out. And so his men, who now number 600, so there's another couple of hundred have joined, those group or that group leave Keilah before it's too late. Word then gets to Saul that David has up and left, that he's escaped, and so Saul calls off the mission and discovers, do you know something? I got it wrong. God hasn't delivered David into my hands. Saul was found out. Now, as I, as I read that part of the story, I kind of think, wouldn't it be amazing, like, like really amazing to receive that sort of precise, instant accessible information and guidance about what to do next in certain situations? Where you kind of just ask of God, God, I have a number of questions for you. Can you tell me what's going to happen? And God does tell you. I mean, wouldn't that be brilliant? Or to be able to take your very real concerns to God and to find help at your exact point of need. Now, in some ways, I've got to acknowledge that, that this is a very specific moment in David's story. This is a very specific moment in God's story. This is a very specific moment in salvation history in general. And therefore, getting David through this episode unscathed and still able to fulfill his destiny is a key issue. And so God is, and as we've said this many, many times, God is in control. Therefore, God is accomplishing his purposes in his time and his way at this time. So this is very specific. I know that. But if you take a step back and you reflect a little further, there is an actual overlap. There are certain similarities between this and us. There is a principle here that applies to you and I this evening. Because David, it seems, certainly in the second little episode, David gains access to God via an appointed priest. And according to God's word, that is actually an amazing privilege that we enjoy now. 
We have, the Bible says, a high priest who's greater than Abathar, who enables us to seek God. A high priest who knows exactly where you're at this evening. A high priest who knows what you're struggling with at the moment. A high priest who enables you to approach God, receive mercy, and find grace. Let's listen to these words. Therefore, since we have a great high priest, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then, as a result of us having a high priest, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, here's the fact, so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And so if you're here tonight and you're feeling pretty weak, or you're confused, or you're wrestling with temptation, or you're simply a little worried or concerned about what is going on in and around you, here's what I'd say. Seek God. You're not alone. You're not cut adrift. But because of Jesus, you have direct access to Almighty God, the ultimate grace dispenser for every single situation or circumstance. And I realize when you maybe read something like this, you say, yeah, yeah, it sounds great. But if I'm honest, it feels a wee bit out there. Or maybe it's just the, the expected thing I, I would hear in, in a church. But you know, if we believe in God's word, that he is faithful to all his promises, which is something Vic read for us from Psalm 145, right at the very start, God keeps all his promises. If we believe in God's word, then to repeat something I said a moment ago, what God says will happen, will happen. If you approach God with confidence because of Jesus, you'll receive mercy, you'll find grace for any situation you find yourself in. That's an amazing thought. Let's move on. David then makes his way to the wilderness, or a wilderness. But Saul, who, who, who seems to just be unwilling to give up the chase, Saul finds out where he is. Word also filters through to, to David that Saul's coming to take him out. And again, just if, if you pause for a moment there, David got guidance whenever he needed it in Keilah. But in what seems like no time at all, he needs God's guidance again. And that's the way it tends to work in life. We navigate our way through one difficult challenge only to find another one lurking around the next corner. But like David, what you need to remember and discover is that, listen, God is still able to offer mercy and grace time and time and time again. Because the Psalm 46 verse 1 says, God is an ever-present help in trouble. Ever-present. So you may be navigating your way through something at the moment. You need God's mercy. You need God's grace. The likelihood is you make it through this thing, but there'll be something else. 
That's, that's just life. Jonathan gets word that, that David's in this wilderness. And so Jonathan makes his way to David for what will be, and this is really interesting, this is their last encounter. Although David and Jonathan don't realize this at the time of this encounter. But this is the last time they see each other. And Jonathan brings to David in this wilderness words of encouragement, affirmation, and hope. Jonathan's mere presence, yes, that's a massive boost to David, but, but it's not enough. It's what Jonathan said that meant the world. And effectively what Jonathan said or shared was God's promise to David. God's word to David. Look at verse 17. It's on the screen. Do not be afraid, says Jonathan to David. The hand of my father Saul shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel. And I will be second to you. My father Saul knows that this is so. And here is one of these principles to grab from this point of the story, that encouragement from God for the people of God comes from the word of God. Encouragement from God for the people of God comes from the word of God. Yes, the visit of a friend is brilliant. The mere presence of a human being brings a certain uh, amount of, of perspective. But if you combine presence with uh, a visit from someone who is really special and close to you with a reminder of God's promises to you, in that, you will really find encouragement, affirmation, and hope. And that was what was so brilliant about John. He just didn't come. He didn't just be there. He actually spoke God's word into David's life. He said, you know something? Here, here's the promise you've got, and it's from God. And because God is faithful to his promises, because God, what God says will happen, does happen, you can find encouragement. You can find hope. And so Jonathan comes with an encouraging reminder of the promises of God. And, and I encourage you, as you navigate through different things, as you see others struggling, facing difficulty in wilderness situations, draw alongside them, yes. Journey with them, yes. But share God's word with them. Remind them of God's promises. And as David or Jonathan goes to walk away, it says that they make a covenant before the Lord. And then there are these solemn words. Solemn because we know that this is the last time they're going to see one another. It says, David remained at Horesh. Jonathan went home. So Jonathan has accomplished his mission, which was to strengthen David. It was to encourage David. But, but that's it. He walks away. And it's now not Jonathan's presence that David needs, but God's. So David is now encouraged. He's had a visit from a close friend who spoke God's word into his life. But, but he's not out of the woods yet. Because some people decide to, if you like, grass on him. Look at this. Ziphites. They know where he is and they actually go and tell Saul. Saul we know where David is, and we'll help you to get him. We will deliver David into your hands. And Saul is immensely grateful. Here's what Saul says. May you be blessed by the Lord. 
for showing me compassion. You see, Saul is still invoking the Lord, even though it's bound to be obvious by now that God has departed from him. We, we know this from the story that he's been rejected by God, but for whatever reason, Saul keeps thinking, listen, God has delivered David into my hand. No, he hasn't. You will be blessed by the Lord. No, you won't. And Saul then asks this group of people, listen, can you just check again as to where is David? Because according to verse 22, this is what Saul says, David's cunning. He hides all over the place. And this group of people, they agree that they will check again as to David's whereabouts. And they eventually, and eventually Saul and his men head after David because the Ziphites confirm where he is. And when they get close, what it says here is there is this kind of nail-biting pursuit that ensues. But before we get to how that kind of plays out, and it is fascinating, but before we get there, go back to verse 19 for a moment. When David is kind of exposed by the Ziphites, Because whenever David hears what they have done, that they have told on him, that they have revealed where he's hiding, David does what David often does. He prays. Or he actually writes a prayerful song. And and it's it's, it's a brilliant default position. And it's one we should all learn from. Now, now in 1 Samuel, and I know some of you are scanning down and going, there's no mention there of David praying. Flick over to Psalm 54 for a moment. Psalm 54. Because here we find David's words or David's prayer or David's song at this particular moment in response to this situation. For those who have been following this series, you'll have realized that this is becoming a real feature of the story on a regular basis because David, David seems to take his circumstances to God in prayer. And we don't, we don't particularly read his prayers within the narrative of the story in 1 Samuel. But as you read through the Psalms and the title of so many of the Psalms, you realize, ah, those are David's prayers in those moments. Psalm 54 is David's prayer in this moment whenever he is grasped on by the Ziphites. Because it says at the top of Psalm 54 in some Bibles, not all Bibles, but it says at the top of it, for the choir director, a Psalm of David Regarding the time the Ziphites came and said to Saul, we know where David's hiding. Then you have this little bit, to be accompanied by stringed instruments. So you've got to kind of imagine strings playing in the background at this moment. But listen to David's prayer or cry. Come with great power, O God, and rescue me. Defend me with your might. Listen to my prayer, O God. Pay attention to my plea. For strangers are attacking me. Violent people are trying to kill me. They care nothing for God. But God is my helper. The Lord keeps me alive. May the evil plans of my enemies be turned against them. Do as you promised and put an end to them. I will sacrifice a voluntary offering to you. I will praise your name, O Lord, for it is good. You have rescued me from my troubles and helped me triumph over my enemies. And what you got here is this recognition of where David finds himself. God, I'm up against it. I am in trouble. Strangers are attacking me. 
But it's also an acknowledgement of who God is. You're great. You're powerful. You're my helper. You keep me alive. You're a promise-keeping God. It's a commitment to praise and worship. I will praise your name, O Lord, for it is good, even though people are constantly turning their back on me. I will praise your name, O Lord. And it's also a reflection of what God has done for him. You, you have rescued me from my troubles. You have helped me triumph over my enemies to date. And, and without going into too much detail here, for me, this is one of these brilliant blueprints for prayer. It's a brilliant blueprint for prayer when you need help. Be honest about your situation. Affirm who God is. And give thanks to him for his protection and presence to date. Recognize where you are. Affirm who God is. And thank him for his protection to date. Back to the story. 1 Samuel 23, 26, we have this pursuit. And what it actually says in, in the text is that the David and his men are on one side of the mountain. Saul and his men are on the other side of the mountain. And Saul and his men are chasing David round the mountain. Now, and don't break into song, okay? I'm coming around the mountain, not that. But Saul and his men are chasing David and his men round the mountain. And it actually says that Saul and his men are gathering pace and are actually catching David up. So it's only a matter of time. It is only a matter of time now until Saul gets him. When all of a sudden, there's a frantic voice calling for the king urging him to come quickly because Philistines are raiding the homeland. And what it says is Saul puts the brakes on and goes back to sort out the Philistines. And David's left to live another day. And you could say, you know, it's a lucky break. David, you can thank his lucky stars there. Or you could step back and with the eyes of faith, again, say, do you know something? God is in control. And do you know something? There's humor here because David's personal savior, if you like, in this near-death experience was an unlikely source. Such an unlikely source. The Philistines have saved David's life. The irony. And it's not the last time that Philistines saved David's skin. Unlikely, unexpected saviors. You see, as God works out his purposes in David's life, he often surprises him with how he intervenes. And I know you could take that in any number of different directions, but all I want to say is this, that whenever we do cry out to God for help, as David did, whenever you seek God's intervention and protection and rescue, the way it happens or the people that God uses to step into your situation and provide an out or hope or a distraction might take us by complete surprise. They may, may not even be part of the faith community. God works, always has done, always will in mysterious ways. And, and that, in a sense, is what makes the adventure so exciting. And the place where David got the break, says here, according to verse 28, becomes known as Selah Hamanalakoth, the rock of escape where God intervened in a most unlikely way and then throughout the Psalms time and time again God is our refuge and strength 
He's a rock, a fortress, an ever-present help in trouble. And here's a, an illustration of that. And then, where David gets the break, it says, he then goes, as Saul's away sorting out the Philistine, he then goes and lives in the strongholds of En Gedi. And then something bizarre happens. And in a sense, this is, what, this is where we'll finish the story for tonight. It's one of the best known bits of the story, what happens next. I would suggest that chapter 23 is not particularly known. Chapter 24 is very well known. You see, Saul hasn't given up. So yes, he's gone back to fight the Philistines and he must have sorted them out because now he's back on mission. Now he's back after David. He's back in the road again and after discovering David's whereabouts and, and it fascinates me, how does Saul always know where David is? Like had he him GPS tracked? How come every single time something happens he seems to know his whereabouts? But not only that, Saul's intelligence or David's intelligence service seems to be pretty good as well because he always seems to get word that Saul's on his way to get you. I don't really understand how that works. But it says here at this point that Saul comes back from dealing with the Philistines that he rounds up 3,000 elite fighting machines. Okay? So what you've got to realize is at this point of the story he's got 3,000 men. David has now 600 men. They outnumber David's men 5 to 1. So, so Saul has now got incredibly serious about this. But as he makes his way to where he thinks David is, Saul needs a toilet break. And this is, I mean, this, this fascinates me, this part of the story. I just find it bizarre. <laughs> Saul needs a toilet break, and it says he nips into the cave to, re to relieve himself. But to quote verse 3, and, and I love, I love the, the text of the Bible here in the language, right? It's, it says he's nipped in to relieve himself. And then verse 3, as it happened, as if. <laughs> like, as it happened, David and his men, 600 of them, are hiding further back in the cave. This, this is, I mean, this is a priceless moment. David can't, or his men, can't quite believe what's happening. And you, you can assume, or you can, realize, you can see why they see this as a kind of obvious opportunity to end this running from pillar to post. Here's our opportunity. Saul's defenseless. He squats unarmed. He's alone. A more vulnerable position is hard to imagine. And so, so David's men watch David as he creeps towards Saul with a knife in hand. This is it. This is the end of the chase. And they watch in total disbelief as David simply cuts a wee bit off Saul's robe. And if that was not madness, what David does next is completely dumb. Because after having a crisis of conscience, because David realized, I, I shouldn't have done that. I should not even have taken a, a piece out of the king's robe. What he then does is he follows Saul out of the cave. He attracts his attention and he bows before him. And you can only imagine what David's men are thinking as they watch on. Not only has David not killed Saul when he had a chance, but he's now just put all of our lives at risk. He's got 3,000 men. 
We have no chance here. And David's out there, bowed before the one person who has been all around this part of the world trying to kill him. David is now face to face, or rather face to feet, with the person who's been relentlessly trying to kill him. And from his vulnerable position, before this king, he makes an impassioned speech. It's by far the longest speech David has made in the story so far. And David illustrates, listen Saul, I am not out to harm you, irrespective of what you think, irrespective of what you heard, I mean you no harm. And to prove I mean you no harm, look what I'm holding, check your robe. I I could have just killed you. Then David hands, and and this this is a a really interesting part. David then hands, as as he's prostrate before the king, he hands the whole situation over to God to judge and to sort out justice. David could have taken things into his own hands. David could have dispensed judgment and killed Saul. But he chose not to. Why? Because at the end of the day, David knew that ultimately judgment is God's prerogative. David could have fast-tracked his appointment as king, but he was willing to wait, willing to accept that, that his ways are not necessarily God's ways, that it was not up to David to sort out who lives and who dies, but that he could trust God and look to God, that he could appeal to God, which is what he does here, He appeals to God, God, you judge now. God, you sort out justice. And as the line from Genesis 18 reminds us, and always should, surely or shall not the judge of earth, all the earth, do right. And the answer is, yes, he will. Every single time. It's not my responsibility. It's not my calling. It's not my challenge to administer justice, to dish out judgment. My responsibility, calling, and challenge is to be patient, to be obedient, and to be hopeful in the meantime. That one day, there is going to be a day of reckoning. One day, justice will be served. But I don't decide when that day is, and I don't decide how God judges. And so whenever... You kind of want to pass judgment on someone or you want to take them out maybe in words and not necessarily in deeds. Remember the example of David. And when David finishes speaking here and he says, God, it's over to you now. Please judge this situation. You administer justice. When David finishes speaking, you kind of hold your breath. How's Saul going to respond? How's he going to respond? And when it comes, Saul's response is moving. And there's hope, at least for now anyway. Because what you read here is Saul calls David by name. Do you know this is one of the first times he's done this? Up to now, every time Saul has referred to David, he said that son of Jesse. Never used his name. Here, first time, he actually says David's name. And then he refers to David as his son. And there's a sense here of which you think, is his relationship being restored? And then the text movingly says, Saul cries. 
Saul starts weeping. And through his tears, he admits, you know something, David, you're a better man than me. That you have repaid my evil, because I was intent on killing you. You've repaid my evil with good. And in another first, and, and this is a first, Saul verbally acknowledges that David will indeed be king. And that actually Israel's going to flourish under him. You see, whenever you choose God's way as opposed to man's, all those men in the cave are saying, David, kill him, take him out. Judge, minister justice. You've got the chance. But David said, no, that's not what God has told me to do. That's not what I believe is the right thing to do here. And whenever you opt to do the right thing as opposed to the most natural thing, the most convenient thing, or the most popular thing, people often notice. Saul noticed. And he then began, it would seem for a moment anyway, to have a deep respect for David. Doesn't always happen, I know that. But though everyone mightn't always get it or see it, God will. God will see it. And whenever you realize that, yes, my ultimate judge is God. My ultimate judge is God. Then that's what or that's who really matters. And the scene ends at this point. And you almost, or, or maybe you do feel slightly sorry for Saul now. Because he appears to have turned a corner. But without kind of bursting your bubble. This is only a short-lived softening of his heart as the next chapter in the story reveals. For David, he took a risk. But you know something? His kindness shone through. And let me just, just finish with this thought. Here, here's what Saul said to David. Yes, David, you have been amazingly kind to me today. And maybe the final thought that, that and we all could take away from this evening is this. Go take a risk and show kindness to someone who maybe doesn't expect it from you. Or actually, go and show kindness to someone who doesn't deserve it from you. That's what David chose to do. Let's pray. Father, again, we, we have just worked our way through the twists and turns in, in this chapter in David's story and, and we thank you for your word God and for the detail of it and for story and God we love story because stories connect we can enter into stories and so tonight as we have just attempted to, to work our way through two chapters actually of, of David's story I pray that those lessons we have drawn out we kind of find a resting place, a lodging place within our hearts and minds. That we will remember that we've got a high priest. And through that high priest, we have access to God. And therefore, we can confidently seek God, draw near to God, and find mercy and grace in each and every circumstance. And that we have a high priest who, who knows what it's like to be tempted in every way who knows our weaknesses. But God, we also thank you for those other lessons we have thought about this evening. May they continue 
to work their way through into our lives on a day-to-day basis. May we be the kind of people who go and show kindness to those who don't expect it from us, who don't deserve it from us, knowing that ultimately, God, you see, and it's you that matters. Because one day, we will all give an account to you for what we have done with this life. In Jesus' name we pray and give you thanks.